Uh, we please pray with me. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my God, my strength, and my Redeemer. Amen. Kind of of two minds whether to come down to the front. I'm going to come down. Um, I know. I heard a sigh. Um, that stage is more of like a preacher sneaker kind of stage, um, and so it's nice to be closer to you, <laughs> to you all. Um, last Sunday we had a service, um, morning service, and a small barn, and it was really great to have everybody close and intimate. So I'm going to do my best to try to be a little bit, a little bit closer. Um, last Sunday we did uh, reflected on Philippians 1, uh, 27 through 30. We reflected on what it is to have a manner of life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and that manner of life, um, not just being a generic sort of manner of behavior, but a, a collective way of being um, in the world, and a, and a statement that has, some, has political overtones and repercussions. Um, because that idea of manner of life, the word that's used um, in that scripture, is, is speaking about sort of a, a civilizational kind of manner of life or a polity within the world. And there was a particular polity in that time in Philippi. There was a Roman manner of life um, and a manner of life that embodied its virtues um, and its vision of civilization. And those virtues and that civilization was, was based on a, a pretty plain hierarchy, a hierarchy of citizens and then freemen, of women, of children, and slaves. Um, and at the very top of that hierarchy was the emperor. Um, and at the time of this letter, the emperor Nero, um, who claimed a sort of godlike authority over the empire and, and indeed sort of aspirations of being sort of god to this, to this world, the son of God. And so there were virtues that reinforced that vision and that plan for civilization. Um, first of all, being honor the hierarchy. And then climb the hierarchy, if you can. Improve your position, because um, uh, the lowest of a slave wanted to improve their position, so they weren't quite low as a slave. Maybe they might be able to purchase or eventually be granted um, their freedom. Again, each person all the way up that hierarchy trying to improve their position. And so Paul, when he's talking about a manner of life, he's, he's teaking, speaking of a different civilization, a different kind of polity, and let your manner of life, your way of being within the world, be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a different kind of good news, a different kind of way of being um, within the world, and a different kind of unifying civilization, unifying society. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, that manner of life, was very different um, in its vision for civilization. That the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. That we are um, to consider it a, a blessing in some ways to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. And, and Paul um, is showing that multiple times throughout this letter. Um, it is, it's, again, I wonder what people thought of, like, what a frustrating person. We put him in jail, and he's like, I'm so glad I'm in jail. You know, the gospel's being spread through my circumstances. I don't want to make light of it. I'm sure there was a lot of groaning for Paul as well. Um, but that the, this is a very different civilization, a different way of being within the world. That Jesus is the Lord of God's kingdom and of a heavenly kingdom, of a kingdom that's not passing away. And this Lord, um, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to set others free 
and to unify and bring people under um, his rule of peace. And there are virtues of humility and love that if anyone would be first, he or she must be last of all and servant of all. So as you can see, um, it's a very different manner of life within the world. So overlapping spheres in that um, Jesus' followers were in that same world, in that same kingdom, and in some ways there was no contradiction of them being within that, um, that Roman Empire. They could pray for the emperor, but they wouldn't pray to the emperor. But they had very different aims and playing a very different game um, in terms of power within the world. And in a Roman colony like Philippi, um, one which we talked about last week, had uh, either heritage of lots of veterans uh, of Roman, um, Roman soldiers, maybe in a couple of different phases, there were consequences for declaring that Jesus is Lord and consequences for having a different, um, you know, con- uh, having a, uh, an aim towards a different kingdom. Consequences for praying for Caesar, but not to him. And so that is a lot of a friction, and I think the tension that the Christians in Philippi were facing. What will your manner of life be? Will it be a Roman manner of life or a Christian manner of life when there are those places of friction, when there's persecution? What, what do you choose? Is Jesus Lord or is Caesar Lord? With whom are you walking? Are you walking alongside those who are striving, seeking to improve their position with selfish ambition or vain conceit? Or are you walking alongside those who are called to serve? Are you following a Lord who came not um, to be served, but to serve others? So are you fellow servants, members of this new polity within the world, or social climbers trying to climb that Roman hierarchy? So Rome unified people under one manner of life that privileged power, and Jesus set people free from a striving for that power that is passing away through a manner of life that lifts up the humble. And so it's it subversive um, as, it, as the kingdom of God is still subversive in this world. Now following last Sunday's service, I had conversations with a few of you um, asking about the Christian manner of life. In particular, what is, what is humility? What does it mean to be a servant? What is service? Um, are followers of Jesus um, just sort of jellyfish? Um, are they spineless people um, who are just, they gotta go where other people of power put them? Are Christians doormats to other people's power and desires? Um, I have a very vivid memory of um, in a, in a very earnest conversation with a friend of mine who played Bethel, or football at Bethel, um, asking him, is it really good for Christians to play football because it's pushing against and it's not, you know, I, I really was, like I was sort of thinking, how can, how can that be if we're to be humble and always serving? There's um, a quote, I'm gonna call it pseudo C.S. Lewis. You may have heard it as Lewis um, saying humility isn't thinking less of yourself but thinking about yourself less. Who's heard that one? Yes. I guess it's actually Rick Warren, you know. <laughs> Rick, Rick Warren paraphrasing C.S. Lewis. Um, Lewis said something similar and I think similar impact in mere Christianity. He says if anyone would like to acquire humility, the first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step to at least nothing can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Jesus um, shows us humility and true service, um, but Jesus was not a doormat. He was not a jellyfish. 
Um, that humility, um, that virtue um, in Jesus' kingdom isn't the absence of power or just taking on a position of servility, um, not lacking, um, having no self-regard for oneself, um, to not stand against injustices against you or against others. But it's a disciplined restraint and righteous exercise of power for the sake of others. It's, it's a disciplined restraint of power and a righteous exercise of power, not, again, for selfish ambition or vain conceit, but for the sake of others. In today's reading, um, Paul is exhorting um, Jesus' followers to do this. Have that same mind. Do the same thing that Jesus has done for you. That today's passage is essentially a worshipful meditation um, upon what God has done in the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. And Paul writes of how Jesus, the Son of God and possessor of supreme power, at which every, name, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, modeled humility in the form of a servant. And so if you identify with Jesus, the Son of God, if you have comfort from the love of God, if you have um, any delight in the fellowship of the Spirit, any one of those different things would be enough exhortation to have the same mind, but to collectively, all the more, then have that, um, have that mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Share in Jesus' mindset, his posture within the world, and share and strive with others um, for the mind of those who follow him. Verses one through four, which we have, um, are very consistent with the passages that we read uh, last Sunday. It's connecting that manner of life worthy of the gospel, the belief, um, the suffering, um, with the mind of Christ. Again, if you have any encouragement, if you have any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, then become what you are. Have the mindset of Christ yourself. Any one of those things, Paul lists, is worthy of that response, but so much more so altogether collectively. The next verses that follow, verses five um, through 11, have a poetic structure um, and a language, or actually, I think, six through 11, more pronounced. It's a poem, um, or there's, there's speculation that it's a poem or a hymn. It has just a very different um, mode of writing. It's a joyful, poetic statement of faith in Jesus the Messiah. And verses six through eight focus on Jesus' hum- humbling, his humiliation, and nine through 11 speak of Jesus' exaltation. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, not grasping, um, but offering and emptying. This idea of not grasping, of not being one who grasps, I think maybe gives us some echoes. Can you think of a time when people were grasping in the Old Testament, maybe at the very beginning, grasping from the tree, (laughs) um, that there is a grasping for equality with God um, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it was a grasping, just as the grasping that we know maybe ourselves or that we see within this world, a grasping that doesn't bring equality, that doesn't, um, doesn't bring peace, but just perpetuates more and more grasping. Grasping that didn't bring equality with God, but a revelation of sin and how, fall, how, fall we far, um, how far we fall short of God's glory. In that posture of grasping, power is scarce, um, and so therefore take as much of it as you can. There's a hierarchy, so ascend it as best you can. 
There's the coercion um, of the Roman cult um, that you need to not just pray for Caesar, but pray to Caesar. That is where the focus of authority and power lies. So take what you want, take what you can. That it is not um, a thing to be grasped. Equality with God is not a thing to be grasped. It's not a thing to be leveraged for advantage or taken by force. Um, but that it is actually in, in, in giving that we receive. And so instead, Jesus offered himself. He emptied himself. The word um, kenosis is what is being used here. An emptying, a pouring out. Offering himself to the Father. Pouring him out as an offering to God. Which um, later in chapter 2, we'll hear of a drink offering in which Paul's thinking of how he himself and others who follow Jesus are being poured out. That offering is not um, selfish ambition, but humility. It's not in the form of pagan gods that demand um, sacrifice, but the form of a servant who offers themselves as a sacrifice or offers their, their, um, their time, their attention as an offering. It's not in the model of rulers like Herod or Caesar, but the form of a servant. And so Jesus was in the form of God and the form and likeness of man, never ceasing to be God, but affecting communion between God and humanity being one who always said, not my will, but your will be done. This hymn, or this poem that we see, uh, when we think of it, who's, who's heard the word Christology before, right? Like it's how we talk about what is, who is, who is, who is Jesus? And we look at these sorts of passages, this is described as having a high Christology where Jesus was both God and man, and see those things as a problem to be solved that there's contradiction in that, like how can there be limits? Where's the boundaries of, of those things? I don't think it's a contradiction, and I think the form that Paul chooses in trying to communicate that shows that. It's, it's a challenge to our assumptions about the relationship between power and humility. That it's, again, we're not either jellyfish or um, a person who just stands ramrod unbending um, to others or seeking their own, um, seeking our own power all the time. It's not a contradiction, but it's a challenge to our assumptions about the relationship between power and humility. And so Paul chooses this, um, this mode of hymn or poem to, to extol Jesus' character and virtue. That Jesus' character is worthy of praise. It's worth considering those questions um, of Jesus' character and divine and human nature. We'll, again, proclaim our faith through the words of the creed after our sermon. But the whole point of those things and, and the focus is worship of Jesus and being formed more after his image and likeness. It's not to just dissect in an abstract way, but to embody and to, to resonate with that truth. It is cause for joy for us to have the same mind as Christ because that is the fullness of life to not be, again, living in, in a world that's passing away or grasping through things that will just continue to slip through our fingers and be scarce and scarce and scarce. But that it is um, worthy of our, um, of our joy and um, to extol Jesus' character and that bringing together of divine human nature. That mode of poetry and song is the only, I think the most fitting way to worshipfully meditate upon those truths, the goodness and the beauty of Christ Jesus. I think it's interesting that Paul 
Paul doesn't introduce um, this hymn or this poem, so if it's something new, it might come as like, well, where's that coming from? And so I, I, it's just speculation, but I wonder um, that lack of introduction maybe think, makes me think that Paul is something, referencing something that the Philippians already, already knew, might already be familiar with. That like when a preacher quotes a stanza from a hymn or a section of a liturgy, that Paul is taking that familiarity uh, for granted, as if to sort of say this needs no introduction. And I think rhetorically as well, emphasizing how important this is to meditate on and memorize, that this is, this is gonna be your answer of how you think of um, what is it to have the mind of Christ. That servanthood and offering, that open-handedness are part of God's character. That God's character and glory are revealed in Jesus' incarnation, that they're not um, obscured or that there was some sort of cutting off of, of divine power that are challenges, it challenges our conceptions of power, um, but I don't think it contradicts um, God's power um, and holiness. We extol Jesus as king, and we say this, was, this is one of my favorite things that kind of like clicked for me within our liturgy for, um, for Palm Sunday, that we extol Jesus as king, though we recognize that his crown was a crown of thorns and his throne a cross. That we can kind of lose sight of the fact that again, Jesus came not to um, be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. Jesus possessed equality with God, but did not grasp it. Instead, he held his glory open-handed, offering his life even unto death. And so for us, um, followers of Jesus have that same mind, our own open-handed offerings, not grasping but trusting that what God gives us will be sufficient and that we can offer ourselves, souls and bodies as living sacrifices to him. We can do that in worship, in songs of praise um, that every knee should bow that Jesus, and proclaim that Jesus is Christ is Lord. We do that in song, um, offering our bodies, not just our voices, but like our bodies as resonant witness of God and Christ and worshiping him. Resonating in us, um, maybe in hearing um, those words resonating in you from the people you are striving with side by side for the, for the faith of the gospel, but also resonating out from you as you proclaim these truths with the truth, um, truths with goodness and beauty. We do this as well in our worship service through offering, that when we say all things come from you, O Lord, we are trying to empty ourselves from a striving for, for physical things as those, those are our security. There's certainly a stewardship um, of the natural things of this world, but in offering them to the Lord, it can be sort of an exchange in, what, in which what is passing away contributes to the kingdom to come. And that, it, it's money, it's involved in money, but it's also our time, our attention, um, and above all, our devotion that we offer to ourselves our souls and bodies to be living sacrifices to the Lord. And so yes, we give offering, but we're also releasing, that forgetting what lies behind, forgetting um, things that we might grasp and strive, strive for, but pressing on, um, laying aside anything that might hinder us to press on towards the goal of the upward call in God in Christ Jesus. So that's what we can um, have that mind and be towards the Lord but we share that mind with fellow Christians. We share that, um, that manner of life with each other. Uh, humility um, remains a challenge, um, though, within 
among Christians today. Who, who troubles, who has trouble with humility? I, I do. If you are not conceited, you are conceited very much indeed. There are, there are examples of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Um, I, it, it was such a small moment, but years ago I was, I was prayed for by, um, by a senior sort of leader, and he was praying for me and pushing, like pushing on my head. And I was kind of like, it was like this jellyfish moment, like, well, do I fall over? <laughs> or do I like press forward and like, am I resistant? It, it was just this like conundrum. Should I keep my posture or get pushed over? Now, I'm not gonna say that there's no such thing as being slain in the spirit, but that was a moment where I was like, I think this is sometimes what slain in the spirit looks like. People are just pushed over. <laughs> like it's like, well, here I go. Um, and I think we can contrast that to, to leaders within the church. Um, there's another example uh, a couple of years ago in which a bishop, he was ordaining a deacon um, and he said, you know, in order to lead, you must learn to serve. And so now I'm gonna wash your feet. And the deacon said, now? <laughs> and he said, yep. And they sat in a chair and he washed um, their feet as an example of this is where it all begins. And I, your bishop, are one who washes um, feet. I'm servant is not above his or her master. And so we share that mind um, with our fellow Christians and our posture, our attitude towards one another. But it's also in, in our offerings, the way that we use our time, the way that we love each other in discipleship. And within our liturgy, again, we have numerous examples where we get to make promises to each other, together with one another, to support one another in our life in Christ. Um, in baptism, we say, will you do all within your power to support these people within your life in Christ? And you, you've said, yes, we will, for many people. And we, we, we try to keep that with integrity. We do the same within confirmation. We do that within marriages. We support people within the certain calling that God has given them. And even within ordination, that we support those who are called to that office. We're citizens of heaven, um, invested and participating in the kingdom of heaven. And Paul, um, in this letter, is one who, I think that's why he can say, I'm in prison, but it's advancing the gospel. And later in the letter, we'll learn of Timothy and Epaphroditus, um, who are also pouring themselves out for the sake of the discipleship and the spread of the gospel for others. Our service um, of other believers and our manner of life of the church is a witness um, to the world. Our mission arises um, from our worship and our discipleship. And sometimes I think those things can be set aside, set against each other. There's, there's missional churches and there's worshiping churches. But I don't think that that has to be the case. Our worship and discipleship, um, our proclamation that Jesus is Lord and they can be worked out in service to the world and service to others so that people say like, why, why do you care for, for your neighbor, this person? Um, why, why do you call this person a brother or a sister in Christ? You have no relation to one another. That is a witness and a proclamation that Jesus' kingdom has come and is coming. And that it is a way in which we worship him. I just want to call out a few um, sort of examples of, of service within the church and give thanks. Um, we had a youth retreat this weekend. Um, I think Deacon Andy was pouring himself out uh, in, in staying up with junior high boys. Yes, yes. 
But it's, it's those sorts of practical um, examples, giving thanks for Caleb and Sarah and um, Andy and Hannah and the Keelers and Todd, um, parents who drove to and from um, the retreat, youth that helped out um, with cleanup and in lots of unseen ways serving one another. It's in discipleship of youth and children it's in generosity um, and service, um, the discreet, you know, small ways that you provide meals in times of need, um, transportation, childcare, seeking each other out um, just in practical ways when you notice that someone might be down, just trying to find out, well, what is, what is that reason? Loving and serving um, as well churches outside of our own congregation. Um, our brothers and sisters at St. John's, uh, Restoration Anglican, Church of the Cross, Resurrection. That is a witness um, to the world as well. And then going even further afield, loving our brothers and sisters in Garissa province where um, uh, Joshua is from and praying for Bishop David, um, praying for the missionaries who are representing Christ in other parts of the world. The incarnation of God in Christ, this, this Christology of, of who, is, who is God and how has he come and shown himself as one who did not come to be served but to serve is a cause for worship and it's a cause for practice. It's again good to think about these things but it, you know, I was gonna say no pun intended, heaven forbid, truly heaven forbid that we stay, that that stays as a cold abstraction because this is a truth for us to proclaim in our word and our action. It's a truth to resonate within our body, mind, and spirit, to, to proclaim with truth and goodness and beauty, to meditate upon, to sing about, and to be practiced in love. Let us pray. O oh God, the light of the minds that know you, the life of the souls that love you, and the strengths of the wills that serve you, Help us so to know you that we may truly love you, and so to love you that we may fully serve you, whom to serve is perfect freedom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.